we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold let's talk finance wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot yahoo finance does just that it consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis making it easier to manage your investments Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. It is Friday. Today was the day of the big monthly non-farm payrolls report, which normally uh, the markets uh, really anticipate this number. It's the most important number of the month as far as most traders are concerned. Remember, I've been talking about the fact that in the past, uh, people pay more attention to money supply and then the trade deficits. Uh, but over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, it seems like the jobs numbers have been the big number, the most anticipated market moving number of the month. Uh, but today, really, it didn't even matter. I mean, nobody even cared really about the number, even though it was really bad, right? I mean, we lost 701,000 jobs uh, officially in the month of March, which is the first time we've actually had a negative sign in front of that number in about a decade. So that's big news, 700,000 jobs, except everybody knows that that number means nothing because we've lost millions and millions of jobs since the data that was used to compile that number right, was calculated. So everybody knows the big number is coming next month uh, when we get the April number, because that's going to have all the big losses in March that really happened after this survey period and the job losses that are happening now. We know over the last two weeks, 10 million people have filed for unemployment. So obviously that's 10 million people who have lost their jobs. Uh, only 700,000 of them are included in, in this survey. And in fact, the, the number was a little worse if you just look at the private sector because private sector job losses were 713,000. 
So that means the government added 12,000 jobs, which is, uh, you know, a negative uh, because those jobs are non-productive jobs. We have to support those jobs. It would be good if government was getting rid of workers so we wouldn't have to pay their salaries and we could free them up uh, to be employed uh, productively. Uh, so we lost those uh, those jobs. And of course, if you look at the breakdown between the service sector and the uh, manufacturing sector, uh, we only lost 18,000 manufacturing jobs, which is, you know, I mean, we lose 18,000 manufacturing jobs in a typical month. In fact, last month, we only created 13,000 manufacturing jobs. So there normally isn't a big number there, unfortunately, when it comes to manufacturing. So the big number is in the service sector. Right. That's where the big job losses were. In fact, that's what the, the, the 713,000 loss was. That was in the in the service sector. So uh, when you add 713,000 to 18,000, the total private sector job losses are even greater. So that means even more people were hired uh, by government to make up for those those losses. But it was the service sector that really got clobbered. Remember, last month we added 242,000 service sector jobs. And in March, 713,000 were eliminated. Of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So it's the service sector that is losing the most jobs because that's where the jobs are. And unfortunately, these jobs are not coming back. If you look at uh, the rest of the number, although some of them will come back eventually, but a lot of them are not going to come back. Uh, labor force participation rate, that went all the way down from 63.4 from the prior month which was as high as it's been in a while, back down to 62.7. Something tells me it's going a lot lower than that. You know, we've been at 62.7 before. I think we're going to head into uncharted territory. You know, technically, when people lose their jobs, they're not out of the labor force. As long as they're still looking, they're still considered part of the labor force. So, uh, you know, I don't know why it dropped so much or, you know, because it, people have just lost their jobs. I mean, technically... Uh, again, as long unless they've said that, you know, I'm done, I'm not going to look, they're still in the labor force. But I think a lot of workers are going to throw in the towel and are going to leave the labor force. Uh, and so the, the participation rate, I think, is ultimately going to go a lot lower than that. But the unemployment rate, of course, is going to go much higher. We got that at 4.4. Uh, the prior month was 3.5. So a pretty big jump. But again, nothing like the jump that we're going to get next month. We're going to see double-digit unemployment, it's probably going to rise uh, to a level that far exceeds anything that we experienced during the Great Recession that followed the financial crisis. Now, I realize that it's not really an apples-to-apples -apples comparison because businesses have been forced to close that might otherwise have remained open. So obviously, these numbers are very skewed. But the bottom line is that when this is over, right, as I've been saying, um, it's not, we're not going back to normal, right? This is not going to be a quick recovery. People keep talking about this, uh, that it's going to be this quick recovery. We can't have a quick recovery. And when we recover, what are we going to recover to? Because we're not going back to this booming economy. Donald Trump, again, was doing this press conference today, and he talked about how we had the greatest economy in the history of the world. And it was just interrupted, that he was forced to shut down this booming economy and so he's just going to start it back up again. But he still doesn't realize that the big, fat, ugly bubble that he inherited from Obama uh, just got bigger, fatter and uglier. And that's what the coronavirus interrupted or more uh, accurately pricked. It pricked that bubble. 
And so we're not going to go back. The best that we can hope for is that we recover from a depression into a recession. I mean, that's about the best that we're going to get, right? We're going to go back into the recession that we would have had anyway. See, all the coronavirus did is accelerate the process of popping this bubble and bringing us into recession, depression. That's all that happened. A lot of businesses that were going to fail just are failing sooner rather than later. A lot of jobs that were going to get lost eventually are now getting lost sooner. But that doesn't mean that these businesses that were just barely hanging on are going to come back anyway. They're not. So we can't we can't just go back uh, to the way we were. Now the stock market again was pretty weak today. We had you know losses. I don't know if any of it had to do with the jobs number. In fact, after the jobs numbers came out, I mean the market actually rallied a bit. Uh, but you know we ended up down. I think the Dow was down 360, about 1.7 percent. We were down better than 500 at one point. I don't know that we were ever down uh, 600 points. In, in fact, the Dow was only down about 600 points on the week, which is not much. It's only about 3%. The NASDAQ uh, was only down about 2% on the week. That index continues to, to hang in there because you have these big you know, FANG names, uh, the widely held names that are really holding up. People are taking refuge in these stocks and they're barely down. And eventually, as I've been saying, I don't think we're going to reach a short-term bottom until these big stocks get killed too. I mean, that's going to have to happen. There's no way. And I know, I mean, some of these companies like an Amazon or a Netflix, right? They're, they're not necessarily seeing a big drop in their business. In fact, their business might even be picking up. But the problem is going to be evaluation. Are the valuations justified given what's going on, given what's happening in the market? And people are going to need their money. A lot of people are going to be withdrawing money from their retirement accounts. And these stocks are going to get sold. And so eventually they're going to crack. It's just that it's taking longer for them to do so, but that's going to happen. But look at the small cap stocks, the Russell 2000, another 7% decline on the week. It had a very weak day today, down a little over 3% on Friday. The index at one point was down over 4%. So it paired its losses. But if you look at the sectors, again, that are the weakest, it's all the retailers, all the stores, uh, you know, the, the restaurant chains, uh, the clothing stores, the financials, the banks, asset managers, all of these companies continue to get obliterated. I mean, how people cannot think this is a financial crisis when you're seeing the stress in the financials. You know, I talked about that stock NRZ. Uh, the thing was down another 20% today. At one point, it was down 30%. When it was on its low this morning, it was down 84% from where it was uh, in February. So, I mean, 84% in one month. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people who were buying this particular stock under the impression that it was conservative. I mean, after all, they were buying mortgages. They were investing in a pool of residential mortgages and they were just collecting income, right? They weren't gambling in the stock market. They were playing it safe. They were investing for income. And I've been warning uh, investors about this for years that they were playing with fire with these closed-end funds. Because first of all, I've always said that, you know, even if it's a mortgage or a loan, they're not necessarily conservative. I mean, you, you may not get your money back. I mean, not all loans repay. But even if you assume that these were quality loans and that they were, you know, on the spectrum of loans, relatively safe or conservative loans, the minute you add leverage, which all these funds had to do, in order to pay the type of dividend yields that they were paying, which is why they were so attractive to investors who were so starved for yield, 
because the Fed has kept interest rates so artificially low, the only way they were able to pay these uh, dividends was to borrow money. And so when you utilize leverage, any investment, even a very conservative investment, once you finance it with leverage, becomes an aggressive investment, a very risky investment. I think there's a lot of people who didn't realize how risky these investments were. I bet there's a lot of brokers who recommend these funds to their clients, closed-in bond funds or mortgage funds or REITs or things like that, under the false impression that they're safe. And they look safe, right? The prices were very stable for a long time until this month. Everything blew up. And now somebody's lost almost all their principal and the dividends are being slashed. And, and so this is going to be a, a huge problem for a lot of people who were dependent on, on these dividends. And now, of course, you know, now they need income. They're not getting dividends anymore. They have to start selling their stocks, you know, the ones that didn't go down in order to get the income that they're no longer receiving on that, what they thought was a conservative uh, portion of their portfolio. But, you know, I was watching a lot of the coverage of uh, the jobs report, of the economy, on the news. And, you know, there was this discussion that particularly bothered me. There's a whole panel discussion early this morning you know, on CNBC, they had a bunch of people on there and they were talking about the stimulus and the bailouts and the deficits. And, you know, they even asked the question, you know, um, well, I mean, is anybody worried about this? Is anybody opposed to like, you know, the big deficits? Because, you know, when we did this uh, the first time, there were some people that, you know, you know, were a little bit uneasy about it. You know, maybe they watched the video I put out uh, from the Cudlow show in 2008, where Cudlow and Santelli and me, right, we were worried about the deficits and inflation and, and, and QE and all that. And the consensus of the panel was, even though some people might have been concerned in 08, that nobody is concerned now, right? That, that it, it is a consensus, almost a unanimous opinion, that it doesn't really matter at this point, that it's so bad that nobody objects to the government borrowing money or the Fed printing money, that everybody wants the stimulus. This is what they were saying, that there's nobody, nobody out there that doesn't share this opinion that we need more government and that the cost be damned because it's, you know, it's just so important that we really have to borrow. We have to drop uh, the money from helicopters and nobody uh, disagrees with that, which of course is nonsense. There are people that disagree with it. I mean, I'm one of them and I'm not the only one. Now it may be, that the only way you get invited on CNBC is if you are part of that consensus, right? You have to agree that the government has to do something. But the reality is the best thing they could do is do nothing. In fact, there's something better than doing nothing. And that is cutting government spending, actually doing the reverse of what they are doing now. You see, the reality is that at, you know, during good times, right? When the economy is good, Maybe we can afford to have extra government, right? Times are so good. We're so flush. We're making so much money that the extra burden imposed by government is manageable. It's affordable. I mean, it's still a net negative, but hey, if things are great, you know, you can afford it. But when times are tough, we're trying to battle the coronavirus, right? Everything is difficult right now. A a tolerable burden becomes an intolerable one. So the best thing the government can do, if the government really wanted to help, the government could cut spending. The government could ease the burden that it places on the economy. And by reducing its spending, 
it will free up resources that the private sector can now use, resources that were previously being diverted to government. So in other words, the only thing that the government could actually do to help is the opposite of what they are doing. What they are doing now is increasing the burden by spending more, borrowing more, printing more. So yes, there are people that disagree that know that this is wrong. And in fact, there is one person, actually, I got to take it back. Although I, I, I saw him, uh, he was on, on Fox. Stuart Varney was interviewing him. And, and, and that is um, Art Laffer, the guy who famously welched on his bet with me, uh, where he bet me a penny and a note when he said there was no recession coming in 2006. And I said we were going to have a collapse. But Art Laffer is criticizing and I'll give him credit for that. I mean, he's still talking about what a great job Trump has done, and I disagree with that. But he is very critical of the stimulus and the bailouts, and he is correctly stating that it will make it worse, which it will. He's saying it will slow down the recovery and deepen the recession, which is 100% true. And what Art Laffer said on Fox is that government spending is taxation, which it is. When the government spends money, where does it get that money? From the public. It doesn't matter if it just prints it. The public still pays because it pays through inflation. It's through a diminishment of their purchasing power. He kept saying to Stuart Varney, there is no free lunch, which is exactly what I've been saying. There's no free lunch. Who is paying for this lunch? The American public. Right. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set.
Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. So when people say the government has to do something, do what? What can they do? They don't have anything that they don't first take. So what you're saying is in order to help the economy, the government has to take money from some people and give it to other people. Well, how is that going to help the economy? I mean, you can argue maybe it temporarily helps the people who get the money. But what about the people who lose the money? The government can't help somebody without hurting somebody else. Who are they hurting? Right. And if this is a, you know, a, a recession and you know, we're worried about businesses, maybe it's businesses. Maybe it's the employers that we're hurting the most. And if we're worried about job losses, does it make sense to help the workers but to hurt their employers? You know, and I know we got all these supposed bailouts yet for the small businesses, but look, it's not going to work. None of these bailouts are going to work. In fact, what are the ironic parts about the bailout, right? What I think they call the $350 billion fund, right, that they're going to replenish as soon as they run out of it, right? This is for small businesses. It's like the Paycheck Protection uh, Program is what they're calling it, PPP, right? Catchy name or something like that. So they want to protect paychecks. And the way they're doing that is that you can borrow the money. And as long as you use like three quarters of it, supposedly for payroll, then if you don't fire anybody or actually rehire some of the people you fire, because you're allowed to fire people, you just have to hire most of them back, uh, I think by the end of June, I forget the exact date. So you can still fire people and not, you know, you just got to hire them back, right? Then you don't have to, you know, repay the loans. But here is a key element of this that nobody's talking about. I mean, in fact, I've never heard anybody talk about it, except you're going to hear me talk about it. And maybe this is the first time anybody's heard about it. But one of the elements of these business loans from the Small Business Administration is that the business owner does not have to post any collateral for the loan, nor does he have to personally guarantee the loan, which he may normally have to do for a small business loan. So in other words, the only recourse the government has to get the money back is to the business. Well, what if the business doesn't survive? What if it shuts down? Well, then they're never going to get the money back. And that's what's going to happen to a lot of these small businesses, whether it's by design or just you know by circumstance. A lot of these businesses that borrow money right, are going to go out of business before the loans have to be repaid. Remember, you get three years to repay the loan, even if it's not forgiven. But assuming that you haven't fired anybody, that may be one of the reasons that you do go bankrupt. You see, it is very dumb for the government to condition these loans on not firing anybody, right? Because you're creating a perverse incentive for a business not to cut costs at a time where cost cutting could be the only thing that allows that business to survive. Right. You're talking about a big decrease in demand for services. And so when that happens, businesses need to react. They need to cut their overhead, cut their costs. And that means cutting their payroll. For a lot of businesses, that's their biggest cost. But if you're incentivizing these businesses not to cut costs, and so they keep workers that they really don't need, that could be what drives these companies out of business. And once they go out of business, 
Well, now all the jobs are gone, so none of the payrolls were protected. I mean, maybe if you allowed the businesses to fire some people, they could save the jobs of others. But if they don't fire anybody and that drives the company into bankruptcy, then everybody gets fired. But now the government doesn't get any money back. So the paychecks aren't protected. They're all lost. And the loans aren't repaid. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of businesses that are going to deliberately borrow the money, knowing they're never going to repay it. Right. I mean, there's a lot of businesses, small businesses and retail, a lot of restaurants and mom and pop stores that were having a hard time competing with Amazon and dealing with minimum wage hikes and all this stuff. Right. They were barely hanging on, you know, before uh, the crisis. So they were going to go out of business anyway. Well, they might as well borrow this money knowing that, you know, they're not going to have to pay it back. Right. I mean, they're drowning anyway. Grab a line. Uh, And so this is what's going to happen. I mean, the government doesn't even stop and think. You know, they were saying that the reason they don't want uh, any collateral or any personal guarantees is because they want to streamline the loan process, right? They don't want to bother to make sure that anybody could actually pay these loans back. They just want to make it really easy for people to get the money. So these are not really loans. They're basically gifts. I don't think anybody is going to repay these loans. Either they're going to stay in business, right? They're not going to fire people. And then they're not going to repay the loans or they're going to go out of business. They're going to fire everybody and they're not going to pay the loans. So this is all debt. This is money that's just going to go go away. But more importantly is by forcing businesses to retain workers longer than they may otherwise have kept them on payroll, the government could force businesses to go bankrupt that actually might have survived, which is another reason that they're going to make this thing worse. And in fact, I was watching uh, Nancy Pelosi came on CNBC today. Uh, with 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 Jim Cramer. And, you know, of course, Cramer was, oh, yeah, you know, this is great. Well, you know, he, he was congratulating her on this, uh, passing this stimulus bill, this $2.2 trillion bill, which is going to make everything worse, right? There's no reason to congratulate her on that. And she already mentioned, let the cat out of the bag, that she already wants to extend the four months of extra supercharged unemployment benefits to everybody, including the gig people and the self-employed, that extra $600 a week, she wants to already extend that from four months to six months, which I've been saying they're going to extend it. I mean, at a minimum, they're going to extend it eight months, right? Because it's eight months until the election. And so there's no way that they're not going to keep that gravy train going to the election because nobody wants to be the guy that votes against the $600 a week because they know that the voter is going to go into the voting booth and, and, and not vote for that guy. They're going to vote for whoever is, is, uh, is giving them that money. And of course, if the Democrats win, I mean, who knows? I mean, it may never go away, right? There's an old saying that nothing is as permanent as a temporary government program. Since this recession depression is going to be with us for a long time, there's going to be unemployment, elevated unemployment, double digit unemployment, for a very, very long time. Now, yes, I mean, once the economy can theoretically restart, whenever that is, I mean, we still have no idea, but we're not going to go back to the bubble. I mean, one of the things that people just don't seem to get, and I don't understand, is it's not a secret that the recovery was asset-based, right? Ben Bernanke came out and told everybody that, as if they didn't know, that the goal of QE1, 2, and 3 was to cause asset prices to rise, stock prices to rise, real estate prices to rise. That was the goal, right? Because they wanted to create a wealth effect. They wanted to build a recovery on a foundation of wealth, of paper wealth, which was a mistake because that's why we had the financial crisis, because we had a phony 
uh, uh, housing bubble that made people think they were richer than they were. And so that was a fake recovery. And so now they wanted another fake recovery, right? They didn't want a real recovery because that involved actual sacrifice. So instead, they just chose the easy route to inflate a bigger bubble than the one that popped. But now that that bubble has popped, now that stock prices are collapsing, right? Now that real estate prices are going down. So the very foundation of the recovery has collapsed. Well, how can we go back to it? If the foundation has collapsed, there's nothing to go back to. It's not there anymore. It's not like when we go back to work, the stock market is going to come roaring back. The real estate market is going to come roaring back. We are early in the bear market, right? This is a bear market in stocks. It's a bear market, I think, in real estate. So American households are going to see their wealth diminishing. So the wealth effect is going to work in reverse. So how can we have a recovery when there's nothing to recover to? We can't reflate the bubble. The Federal Reserve has no more rabbits in its hat. I mean, that's it. So we can't do what we did before. We would have to have a completely new approach, which, of course, we don't have. We're not trying something different. We're not trying to allow a real foundation to be built on savings and underconsumption and investment. We're not making government smaller to enable that to happen. We are repeating all the mistakes that inflated the bubble and that left this phony economy so vulnerable uh, to this collapse. Now, another ironic uh, story, I just read this yesterday. Standard & Poor's right, came out and they reiterated the US credit rating at uh, AA plus, and they said their outlook is stable. Now, first of all, why even reiterate it? Why now? I mean, why go out of your way to reassure everybody that the US government's credit rating is you know, top notch, right? I mean, my point is that why go out of your way? I mean, what would be the point of Standard & Poor's coming out and just reiterating, reassuring everybody that the U.S. credit is still sound and that they're not worried? And obviously, they know that people must be worried. And so they got to come out there for PR, right, and just remind everybody that the U.S. government is fine and that there's nothing to worry about, right? Even though we're borrowing all this money, right, our debt to GDP is probably about to surge to maybe 150 to 200%. I mean, within a year or two, I mean, maybe within a year, less than a year, we'll be at over 150% because we're going to see a 15, 20, 30% contraction in GDP. And at the same time, we're going to see an explosion in the national debt, maybe as large as that. I mean, so our credit quality is imploding, right? And that's the time that Standard & Poor's picked to come out and say, nothing to worry about, right? Everything is fine. Clearly, I think maybe the U.S. government pressured them a little bit, right, knowing right, <laughs> the situation. Hey, you guys better come out and just tell everybody how great we are. Because remember, it was in 2010 that S&P downgraded the U.S. Treasury market from AAA, which is where it had always been, to AA+. Right? And that was like a major thing. right? And they did that in 2010 based on the QE program then and based on the amount of debt. If you go back and look at what S&P said at the time that they downgraded the U.S. Treasury market, it was because of the big deficits that were being run up uh, after the financial crisis. And because of that, they were concerned, and rightly so. And so they, they moved U.S. debt down one notch, right? I mean, I think they should have moved it a lot lower, but they moved it down one notch. And 
I mean, all hell broke loose. I mean, I forget. I, the government came out and punished them. I think they ended up getting fined. I mean, not specifically for that. They came back and they fined them. They you know, had to do with ratings on the mortgage market. But the government found a way to punish S&P right, for, do, for downgrading the U.S. Treasury market without coming out and saying, this is why we're doing it. Because I think the agencies that didn't downgrade the U.S., like Moody's or Fitch, nothing happened to them, right? They, they, they had the same BS ratings on mortgages that S&P. The only rating agency that got punished just happened to be the only agency that downgraded the U.S. government. I mean, coincidence? I don't think so. So anyway, I said at the time, after they got punished, I said, and that years ago, I said, that's it. S&P will never downgrade the U.S. Treasury market again, ever. No matter how much it's deserved, they won't do it. And in fact, now they're probably the U.S. government's lapdog because I bet they got a call. Somebody at S&P got a call from somebody in the Trump administration said, you know, now would be a good time for you to come out and reiterate that you're not worried about anything, that you don't even have a negative outlook, that not only are you not, you know, adjusting our credit rating, but you're not even considering a downgrade. You're not worried at all, right? I mean, I'm surprised they didn't upgrade us back up to AAA, right? I guess maybe that would have been too ridiculous to be believable. So to try to maintain the pretense that there's no collusion going on, uh, they came out and said, no, we're AA+. But look, the reality is U.S. Treasury bonds are junk, right? I mean, it doesn't even matter what the rating is. They're junk. Now, I know there's a lot of people that say, well, it, you know, we really shouldn't even rate them. Because the government's not going to default, right? The U.S. government is borrowing in its own currency, and so it's always going to pay. And so what's the point of even rating U.S. Treasuries? Because they have an unlimited checkbook, and they're never going to default. Well, the purpose behind uh, rating a sovereign nation that borrows in its own currency takes that into consideration. What the rating agencies are supposed to look at is not just default as an option, but inflation as an option, right? That is a primary consideration when it comes to the credit quality of a sovereign government, right? I mean, if the Zimbabwe government was selling Zimbabwe government bonds in its own currency, would you rate it AAA? Right? Well, they're never going to default. I mean, you're going to get all your Zimbabwe dollars back. Of course, you couldn't put a AAA rating on it because you're going to get back money that doesn't buy anything. Right. So that's what S&P is supposed to consider when it looks at any sovereign, whether it's Japan, whether it's the eurozone, is the quality of the currency that the lender will be repaid in. And if there are too much debt for the tax base to handle, right, if governments are running debts that are too high relative to GDP, where you know that the only way to avoid default is to inflate, you are supposed to incorporate that risk of inflation, that risk of purchasing power degradation into your rating. So how can S&P not be making that adjustment now? It is impossible for the U.S. government to repay the debt without massive inflation. And in fact, the only way the U.S. government can avoid massive inflation is to default, right? Those are the two alternatives. Now, if they default, Obviously, that's a big loss to the creditors. They're not going to get repaid. And if they inflate, that is a huge loss to the creditors. There is no way the United States government is going to pay back its creditors with money that has purchasing power equal 
to the value when the loans were made. So the, the, the rating needs to be adjusted lower. It needs to be much lower. How can anybody who's being objective? But clearly, S&P is not. They are not objective. Remember, S&P also had AAA ratings or AA ratings on mortgage bonds that, that, that failed. In fact, even the riskiest tranches of the subprime mortgages that were packaged up and the CMOs that went to zero, even those had investment grades on. I mean, they had low, they were triple B minus, right? But they had a, they were rated something. I remember back then I was saying they should be rated F because they were going to fail. I could see that and I didn't even analyze it. I just knew enough about the mortgage market and the housing market to know that those debts had no chance of being repaid. Yet S&P was still uh, putting investment grade ratings on these bonds. Uh, and I think they were doing that because they were getting a lot of business. They were getting paid to rate these uh, bonds. They knew if they didn't put the ratings on them, then they weren't going to get higher. So yes, I mean, there, there was a lot of self-dealing there. And other uh, mortgage uh, uh, insurers uh, were involved in this. And all these companies are in bed with the government. They're all licensed by the government. You can't compete with them unless you have a government uh, license. So it's, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a cartel that the government creates. And so the government is really in control. So it's not a failure of the free market. We don't have a free market in rating because in order to rate these bonds, the government has to approve you. And there's only a few eight companies that are approved to rate these bonds that everybody has to buy. And so it's a big incestuous relationship. But there's no way that they could look at the current situation and, and, and not downgrade the U.S. Treasury. Because if they downgrade the U.S. Treasury in 2010, right, and the reason they downgraded it, the U.S. government is doing exactly now what they did then, only bigger. The deficits are skyrocketing much more now. So why were they a problem in 2010, yet doing more of it isn't a problem now, right? We have much more debt now than we had in 2010, and we're adding more debt at a faster rate, right? So again, the only reason it's not a problem now is because they're too afraid to speak up because the government already punished them when they did it the last time, and so they learned their lesson. The government got their mind right. But what I think people should be reading into this is the mere fact that they were forced to come out and say that everything is fine and the credit rating is stable, you got to know that there is a lot of pressure, right? They had, there, there was a lot of arm twisting to get them to do that because the government is worried. And yes, I know if you just look at the foreign exchange markets right now, you're not going to see that, right? Because the dollar, you know, had an up week again today. It didn't make new highs, right? But it did recover uh, from the big drop uh, from the prior week and bonds, I mean, bond yields plunged again. Look, the yield on the 10-year is all the way back down to 0. 0.6, um, uh, just under 0. 0.6. And the 30-year yield is slightly better than 1.2. So, you know, we're still, you know, above one in the 30-year. But these are still very low yields. By the way, the short-term stuff no longer is sporting a negative nominal yield. The 30-day bills are back up to 0. 0.06. And the six months are up to 0.13. I mean, still minuscule, but those numbers had negatives in front of them uh, at one point uh, last week. But you still have, you know, demand for treasuries, albeit artificial demand. I mean, the Federal Reserve is supplying all that demand. Believe me, without the Federal Reserve in there buying up all these treasuries, prices would be crashing. Right. So now you have the Fed out there buying and then you have S&P out there reassuring everybody that there's nothing to worry about. And yeah, the dollar was a little stronger, but this is all temporary, you know, and a lot of people are out there talking about this big dollar shortage and the dollar is going to go up. Look, 
There is no dollar shortage. There is a glut of dollars. And the glut is going to get bigger and bigger. Now, yes, there are a lot of uh, borrowers outside the United States that have dollar-denominated loans. And some of those loans are probably needing to be repaid now, right? Not all of them. Most of them aren't maturing now, but there's probably some debt. And there are probably some companies that are scrambling uh, to get dollars uh, to make these payments. And maybe their businesses have been interrupted. So they're not earning as many dollars as they were uh, because of the disruption in the global economy. So yes, on a short-term basis, there's going to be a liquidity squeeze. And that is going to work to, in favor of the dollar. But it's only a matter of time until that passes. And ultimately, the dollar debt is not going to be a problem for the debtors. It's going to be a problem for the lenders. Because, see, once the dollar really starts to fall, and it's going to fall, it's going to drop like a stone, the least of anybody's worries is going to be their dollar debt. It's going to be the people who are owed dollars that are going to be uh, – scared. They're going to be the ones that are worried because they're going to be watching the value of their assets evaporate. See, the loans aren't going to be a problem. Once the dollar starts to collapse, then the loans are basically forgiven, right? All these foreigners that have dollar loans, when the U.S. dollar starts to plunge relative to the currencies that they're earning in their businesses, it's like their loans are being forgiven. So that's not going to be a problem in the long run, right? I think companies that make it through this short-term problem regarding their dollar debt, there's a lot of light at the end of this tunnel. Because once we get through the dollar rally to the dollar collapse, the dollar debt is going to take care of itself, right? It's going to be inflated away. So it's going to be the uh, the lenders that are going to have a problem. It's not going to be the debtors, right? It's going to be the people who are going to watch the value of their loans that they own, you know, implode. Now, I think that's pretty much uh, what, I, what, what, what I had in mind. But, you know, I think the big takeaway from uh, what happened today is, is just a complete lack of understanding on the part of just about everybody who is covering uh, the markets and the economy regarding the nature of what's going on, right? And, and, and not understanding the, the nature of the economy prior to the crisis. See, everybody is just focusing on the obvious, right? We're shutting down the economy, we're ordering people to stay home. And clearly, yes, that is going to do damage, right? Any healthy economy would have a problem with that, right? And so that, that, that is what's obvious. But what's obviously not so obvious to a lot of people is the condition of the economy before this happened. And the fact that all the coronavirus did is accelerate a collapse that would have happened on its own anyway. And now that it started, now that the credit bubble has imploded and all of the companies that were kept afloat by that bubble are sinking, right? And all of the consumers that were levered up, right? And living beyond their means, right? The, the whole thing is unraveling right before our eyes. The very foundation upon which this phony recovery was resting has been destroyed. And so you can't go back to, the, to what you built when the foundation that supported it is no longer there. And people might think, well, the Fed could just print money again, right? It did it before, right? Well, A, when it tried it, it wasn't nearly this bad. Remember, the 2008 financial crisis didn't start off nearly this bad, right? But 
This crisis is, but we're in much more debt now than we were then. The only thing that would work is what I said earlier in the podcast, which is cutting government spending. And that's the one thing that we don't want to try. Now, I recognize that, yes, because we let the problem get so out of hand, because we kicked the can down the road for so many years, that getting out of the way and letting the market work is not going to be pleasant for a lot of people, but it's the only thing that will work. You know, I talked about it on this uh, podcast in the past, but the last time the government actually did it right was in 1920, right? Nobody has ever heard of the Great Depression of 1920. And the reason is because it didn't happen. See, everybody knows about the Roaring Twenties, but they didn't roar. They almost didn't roar because the Twenties started out with a sharp economic contraction. And this had to do with the end of the First World War. And you know, a lot of the war was financed with new taxes and the Federal Reserve helped finance it. And so there was a lot of debt and some money printing. And, uh, and, and so there's a bit of a bubble. And when the war ended, we had a collapse. And, you know, the, the, if you look at the market decline and the contraction to GDP, everything about the 1920 depression that didn't happen was worse than the 1929 depression that did happen. Right? And the reason that there was no depression in the 1920s is because the government actually cut spending during that depression. And because the government made itself smaller, right, it was a smaller burden on the economy, and it was then easier for the economy to recover. So by doing nothing, in fact, by making itself smaller, by reducing government spending and freeing resources up for the private sector, we avoided a Great Depression. Now, in 1929, we did the opposite, and we created a Great Depression. Under Hoover and then under uh, Roosevelt, government spending grew during the recession, and, and taxes went up. Yes, government spending went up more than taxes, but the government became bigger. It became more involved, a bigger burden on the economy, and that weighed down the economy. That kept it in depression. That prevented a more rapid recovery, which otherwise would have happened, which is exactly what happened in 1920 because the government didn't do anything. In fact, the economy turned around so quickly, they didn't have time to do anything, right? Now, unfortunately, the government acted more quickly in 1929, and so they didn't give the economy enough time to recover. Had they been a little sore, you know, on the trigger, then we may not have had a Great Depression in the 30s either, right? But instead, we did. And what they are doing now is they are setting up a far greater depression, an inflationary depression, because the U.S. economy going into this depression is in far worse shape than it was uh, in the 1930s. I mean, it's not even close. The financial position of the U.S. government is much worse. And of course, you know, back then, you know, the government was already small. It, it, you know, taxes were an afterthought. You know, we had a vibrant industrial economy. Now we have an economy dependent on, on, on welfare and redistribution. We have an enormous uh, welfare state to support. We have all kinds of people who are living off of government, dependent on government. Uh, so we are in a night and day situation and the government is making much bigger mistakes. Nothing has been learned uh, from the past and everybody agrees, right? Everybody whose opinion counts agrees that this is the right thing to do that expanding government, making government bigger 
when the economy is weak and can't afford it is the right thing to do. That going deeper into debt when you already have too much debt is the right thing to do. In fact, ironically, I forgot to mention this when I was talking about those uh, small business loans. You know, it's actually easier to get one of these loans because you have to go down to your bank, right? If you want to get one of these loans. And if you already have a relationship with a bank where you already have a loan, it's much easier for you to qualify. So the businesses that are already in debt and owe money they can't repay, those businesses can borrow money even easier. But if you're a small business that has no debt, it's a lot harder for you to qualify for these loans. It's going to take you a lot longer to get the money because the mechanism to transmit it isn't there. So ironically, the government is helping the most overly indebted businesses go deeper into debt, while the ones that are actually creditworthy are going to have a harder time uh, getting the money. But when you have everybody agreeing that this is the right thing to do, that we need more debt, we need more government, and that helicopter money, dropping helicopters, you know, money not from helicopters. See, they're actually on television saying we need the B-52 bombers. See, the helicopters aren't even big enough. We need to drop so much money on this economy that we need B-52 bombers to drop it, right? When you have everybody agreeing that this is sound economic policy and the only people who disagree, people like me, are completely absent from the conversation, right? Our opinions don't even matter. Nobody is even considering the possibility that maybe that conventional wisdom is wrong and more debt, more money printing, and more government is the last thing that we want, that what we really need is the opposite of that. You know, I mean, again, it reminds me of Seinfeld and, and George Constanza, just do the opposite. You know, if the government and the Federal Reserve simply did the exact opposite of everything they want to do, right? Whenever the Fed has an idea, whenever U.S. Congress has an idea, if they just pause for a minute and try to think of the polar opposite, right? What is the opposite? What is the most opposite of what I'm thinking about doing? If they just pass that, right? Why don't we just have the George Costanza bill, right? Where we just figure out what everybody wants to do. Every politician agrees, every, every Wall Street banker, right? Every, everybody on uh, CNBC, what, find out the consensus of what all these guys think the government should do and what the Federal Reserve should do. And then we just try to figure out what is the most opposite of that, right? And then put all that into one bill and then pass it and have Trump sign it. That is our best hope for actually coming out of this.